the Construction Employers Podcast, your connection to what's happening in the Northeast Ohio construction industry. Brought to you by the Construction Employers Association. Today, our guest is Representative Brad Rose Sweeney from the 14th District of the Ohio House of Representative. Representative, welcome. Thanks for having me. So thanks for being here. This is, uh, we are here meeting November 16th, 2021. It's been a while since June, since I recorded one of these and it was with uh, State Senator Nikki Antonio. So thank you for doing this. And um, I understand that you're not in session this week. Are you on recess right now? We do have session this week. I just didn't have committees today, but okay. we, we have actually two sessions this week. Do you? Okay. Well, thank you for being with us. Your district is the 14th district, which is Brooklyn, Brook Park, Middleburg Heights, and Parma Heights. Is there anything else in that district? And two wards of the city of Cleveland, the um, ward 16 and 17, the western portion of the city. And you are on the House Finance Committee. You're the ranking member of that committee. You're on the House Finance Subcommittee for Primary and Secondary Education financial institutions and insurance. That is correct. And it is a um, new appointment as the ranking member on finance. And I'm very excited. It's not officially confirmed, but I do believe I'm the youngest person ever, Republican or Democrat, to ever hold the position. So wow. very honored. Well, how old are you? Since you 29. Brought it up. <laughs> no, hey, I, I'm happy to talk about it. 29. 29. And yeah. you were elected in 2018. Mm-hmm. Three years ago, so you're 26. That's that's fairly young. It ran, start announced at 25. So announced yeah. at 25. So and I saw I, I did look it up. 72 percent of the vote in 2018, and you're reelected in 2020. So congratulations. Thank you. Uh, during the pandemic, I guess that was probably fun campaigning. Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> I bet it was awful. I mean, because um, with campaigning, the best part or the most um, effective part is being able to interact with people face to face. And in the state, um, you know, our party um, definitely took a step back and tried to use those other methods of contacting, you know, text messages, phone calls, and nothing just really replaces the one-on-one door knocking that we just didn't have. So, right. Well, you're a Democrat, right? Correct. So, yeah. I, and you said our, your party and the Democratic Party took a less in-person mm-hmm. approach to campaigning. I, I agree that that was my perception. I think it hurt the party. I agree. I mean, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but you know, I'll never fault us for keeping um, the people and health and safety first, even if it means uh, not having the most effective um, tool to use in campaigning. Yeah, I I understand exactly what you're saying. I can't I can't argue with it. But um, lessons learned, right? Exactly. So how do you, how did you get into politics? So full disclosure, I do come from a political family, and it's just like if your parents are teachers or doctors, you you know are exposed to that and may have a predis- predisposition to going to that. So um, I grew up in politics. I really don't know a world outside of it, mm-hmm. and um, really watching uh, my father make government work for people, which is not everyone's case. You know, I think most people have a very negative opinion of the government. And I watched him growing up um, as a Cleveland city councilman Mm -hmm. going above and beyond and actually being a force for change and good. And I always um, said, you know, just was drawn to that, but I said, I'd never run. I said, that's, you know, I'm not a, in front of the scenes, front of the cameras type person. And I want to work behind. And so I went to John Carroll, got a political science degree and was fortunate enough to get a fellowship program at the state house and worked in the Ohio Senate for about four years. And then I said, 
you know, and I think I can do this, you know, and uh-huh. I had a lot of good mentors and bosses, but, you know, it was one of those moments where, you know, you're working, writing these speeches, seeing your quotes being in the plain dealer, um, saying, well, why can't it just be my name at the end of that? And really, um, working there gave me the confidence that, which sometimes I can't believe it, 25 is pretty young. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I am shocked that I had the audacity to run at that age. Um, but that's kind of, you know, just a calling of looking at, um, who was running and, you know, caring about my community and, um, thinking at the time of who was announcing to run that, um, I was more capable than those people at the time. And just the need to have a good person serving my community is what drew me to doing that crazy thing at 25. So the thing that I think was most notable on your bio page was the education school funding legislation that you sponsored. Can you tell us about that? I'd be happy to. It's actually um, the crowning achievement of my short time. But I mean, the fact that I had any role to play in overhauling our school funding um, system um, is something that I'll always be very close to my heart. So um, 26 years ago, the Ohio Supreme Court actually deemed that the way that we were funding our um, public schools was unconstitutional. And no General Assembly in 26 years, and to bring up my age again, I was in the um, starting kindergarten in that time. And I've gone through my entire educational journey, old enough to be a sponsor on this bill that, you know, at that time wasn't fixed. And so it took... Um, many people before me um, to get this done, but we worked in a bipartisan um, fashion, um, set aside, I mean, party lines, other interests to actually put Ohio students first. And for the first time ever, we have a constitutional framework um, that hopefully will serve Ohio um, much better than we have been and um, taxpayers in our communities. And, you know, one of the main issues prior to was, um, what the Supreme Court said is that we have an over-reliance on property taxes. Mm-hmm. And what we found, and what you can see directly, the lower value of homes was equated to the quality of education because of the lack of resources that the community could put in. Um, and that's just, you know, inherently unfair. And now, so we've, you know, still have that portion in there, but it's um, more fair for taxpayers in our communities. And, you know, hopefully we can um, continue to grow in that area. So the unconstitutional funding model was based entirely on property taxes or was there something else in there? So there was actually four different Supreme Court cases. Um, one of the most notable was an over-reliance on property taxes. Um, so we kind of got away from that by adding an income component. So, okay. you know, there are some communities that have um, very high property values, but that income is not there. So you know, if you have... Um, or just the opposite, if something were to happen to um, like a major employer in that area, um, that doesn't mean that that community can actually then, you know, chip in the more money. That means less state dollars coming to there. So right. we put that component in there. Another major thing, which is absolutely assur- um, absurd, was that the way that we were funding our base costs, so what every student would get, you know, regardless of where they go, um, was about $6,020. And no one can tell you why that's the number. Like mm. just pulled it out of a hat. And that's what we're then basing to give, you know, children the most important thing that they can have in their life is an education. Right. And it's not tethered to any cost. So for the first time ever, which is crazy, 
We actually, um, based on what we're giving to schools, based on Ohio-specific data about what it actually costs to educate a child in the state, which in the entire history of Ohio, we've never answered that question. So it's, it's historic and it's major that we finally are doing this in an evidence-based way with Ohio data so that we can actually evaluate schools and hopefully have better outcomes for our state. And is your subcommittee responsible for making that determination, or who is actually responsible for calculating that cost? Oh, yeah. Thankfully, it's not the legislators. Um, <laughs> the, um, we had um, – so this bill took three years of um, getting – worked on and the Ohio Department of Education and the experts within there um, did multiple studies to actually look at, you know, what does it cost to, um, you know, for what are the teacher ratios and where should we be funding that at? What does it cost for, um, you know, the other components um, that goes into educating a school? What, you know, principals, um, equipment, making sure that in this day and age that every school has broadband and, you know, that students have access to laptops or Chromebooks. Um, and that just wasn't, you know, inputted that way before. So we got the study and there's more to do. Um, we haven't, you know, the worst thing I'd want to go out there and say, we fixed it. Everything's fine. Cause right. it's not, um, there's more we can do, but the fact that we have a framework, a constitutional framework that's fair, um, that never existed before is, um, a real testament to when Republicans and Democrats work together, mm-hmm. we can actually accomplish great things, which unfortunately is not the typical thing that happens in the state house, but it is one of the crowning achievements um, in decades. And I was happy to actually be the sponsor of that bill. Yeah, it's a, a great achievement. And, and now that it's out of the legislator's hands and the ODE's hand, right? Um, I assume that means it'll happen. Yeah. I mean, it, it's passed, it passed um, in the budget and, um, the key, though, is keep funding it. So um, that's why I'm very honored to be the ranking member, which is the highest Democrat on the finance committee that actually allocates the $70 billion state budget um, and making sure that we continue on the pathway of fully funding the plan um, to make sure that we have all the different options or, you know, any student that wants to go into, you know, a career technical school, um, a charter school, a public school that, you know, it's fair and that they can have a quality education no matter where they're going. Do you know if it was $6,000 before per per student, what is it now? So um, prior to the base cost was $6,020 for everyone, no matter where they were at. Now we have individual base costs, like specific to the school and their school options. So um, on average, it's around upwards to $7,000, $8,000. But the fact that we are actually targeting what it costs, depending on the school you're going to, where you're from, and the cost to that to actually target it, that never existed before. Hmm. So how does that play out in terms of like an urban school versus um, um, country school or suburban school? Is it different based on cost of living where people live or what, what are the factors that make it cost different in different areas? So the biggest cost factor is how many, um, um, how many students are going to be there, um, is a big, you know, factor of that. You know, you have fixed costs such as, you know, all school districts should have a principal and those factors, the bigger school districts will have more, you have the administrators. Um, so in going into, um, teacher ratio population. So, in the state of Ohio, we have a third grade rating guarantee mm-hmm. that you have to pass a, you know, a test in order to prove that you can read in order to move to fourth grade. So that's a big stressor for third grade teachers. So if 
you have, um, and we put more money into third grade. So if you have more students going into third grade, even if you have a different school that has the same population, depending on where they fall, you can get more or less money. So it's that prescriptive kind of the big indicators of, you know, what is the ideal ratio for teachers per student? And depending on where they're at, we'll kind of change that base cost. Okay. I get it. It's very wonky. Yeah. It <laughs> sounds very complicated, yes. which probably needs to be. Yeah. It, yeah. Is there anything in the budget that you noticed that relates to vocational type training, non-college based paths? Yeah. So actually, um, very um, similar to you know what I've talked about, we for our career technical education, the um, money that we were giving to those schools was not again actually tethered to any real cost, and it was just kind of what they were doing was funding everything else in the state budget. Whenever they had left over, they just took that and gave it to education and kind of divide up all the students in the state and said, "Here you go." We know career technicals are different than, you know, our traditional publics, charter schools, um, and they have different needs. So we actually um, put them in a similar formula that I just described, but actually they have the lowest um, teacher-student ratios because of the hands-on, one-on-one work environment and also um, the inputs of the heavy equipment cost and making sure that, especially with technology, ever-increasing that, you know, we are educating students um, that can actually meet the demand of jobs in the future, not just the jobs now. And so we were able um, in this iteration, I did just look it up before coming here um, in this budget cycle, it was an additional $30 million specifically to the career technicals. And if we get to that six year phase and it'll be an additional $110 million, um, which is, I think should be pretty transformational and get us in the framework as things continue to change. Um, we can address the needs of those specific populations, um, you know, going into yeah. that. So, well, so who do, who determines what kinds of programs get funded through that additional money? Is it the Ohio Department of Education or local school boards? Who determines that? So, um, very important. We want to take, leave as much up to the local communities. Um, I do not believe a Columbus knows best um, is often right, mm-hmm. and so it's between um, the individual schools and school districts, the elected um, you know, school board members, and that way that you know the community can also have an input about where they want to be spending those dollars. So we'll fund you based on these ideal ratios, but if you say. You know, third grade reading guarantee is, you know, we're really worried about that. We want to put more teachers in there. You can do that and we'll fund you and you can kind of work around, you know, how much you're getting, but where, how you want to spend it, which is very, very important, I think, to have that local hands-on approach because, you know, government closest to the people um, knows the people the best and often, you know, especially in the state, it's so diverse, um, which is a good thing, mm-hmm. but you don't have a, which what we were doing before was a one size fits all. Everyone gets the same amount of money and that's not, um, it was proven not to work. And the fact that we've gone to this very individualized local approach, I hope will yield better outcomes. Yeah. Great. Uh, so that was uh, house bill one, which was passed in July this year. Mm-hmm. It's part of the state budget. Correct. Well, that's, that's awesome. Uh, and hopefully that one withstands the Supreme Court's scrutiny this time and is more fair and equitable towards all Ohioans. How did you get on to be the sponsor on that bill? Um, 
That's a great question. Um, so, because uh, people ask, you know, do you have any education background? I go, no, not at all. Um, so I, the, um, so the plan um, is House Bill 1, but it's a reintroduction of House Bill 305 from last General Assembly that was nicknamed the Cup Patterson Plan. And so John Patterson was a Democrat teacher from Ashtabula um, for most of his career. And he came down the legislature saying, you know, as I'd actually be shocked to find one politician who hasn't campaigned on fixing our school funding. Right. But he actually said, I'm going to do it. And he worked with Bob Cup, actually, our now Republican Speaker of the House. And um, they worked, I mean, for three years putting this plan together. And because of term limits, John Patterson was termed out. And he had called me, I remember, on New Year's Eve. And I thought he was joking. (laughs) I go, (laughs) <laughs> you know, what you want to give me your legacy and on something he, and he, um, it was again, one of the biggest honors to have been asked to, um, carry that and that he entrusted yeah. me with being able to understand a very, very complicated bill and to actually get it across the finish line, which is again, something we haven't been able to do for 26 years. So, right. Well, kudos to you for educating yourself on the issue and then, and then pursuing it through completion. You said your dad uh, made government work for people. Mm-hmm. You approach it the same way. Absolutely, I think the you know the names and the title, and it's unfortunate. Um, in my time as a staffer at the state house, and definitely now that that's often lost on a lot of politicians that we are public servants and we work for like my constituents, one hundred twenty thousand people I represent. They're my boss, and. Um, you know, that's your role, not the other way around. And so that's absolutely kind of my philosophy. When it comes to that, um, when it comes to your job as a state representative, how much of that job is helping your constituents with issues in their personal lives or community lives versus like policymaking? Because I know, you know, the policymaking is what makes the newspaper, but how much of it is also helping people out? So I would say um, during the pandemic, um, there was an entire time that's all I was doing. Um, especially at the height, you know, of the closures in, you know, middle of March, um, where, you know, we had, I mean, the state shut down and Mm -hmm. people who've never had to deal with unemployment, people who've never lost their job, had no idea how to, you know, who never needed food assistance before. And, you know, my office, um, you know, and as a state representative was, you know, one of their first lines of defense. And, you know, unfortunately, most people I think don't, know what a state representative does in that capacity, know that they write laws, but you know, that I'm also there. If state government isn't working for you, it is my job to help it work for you. I mean, it's only so much I can do, but Mm -hmm. you know, we were getting, um, I mean, I'm going to say probably got up to a thousand calls through the entire pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm specifically on unemployment and hearing these stories of people who were waiting four months, five months without you know, through no fault of their own because the state system failed. And right. while, of course, could we have prepared and planned for a pandemic? No, to this degree. Right. But the state system was um, failing prior. And um, we actually, um, I was talking before the pandemic about the need to have a solvent, you know, unemployment system because, you know, compared to all of the other states, we only had like four months reserves. And right. we're like, what if something crazy happens? <laughs> like we need to have a, you know, at least a year worth of reserves um, in a normal economic downturn. Right. And um, that didn't happen. We didn't have the capacity. We didn't have the workers um, that actually could help, you know, and you would wait on the phone for, I mean, up to a week. I mean, 
So that's a right. lot of what we were doing and, you know, really kind of, um, taking those cases in, kind of becoming caseworkers for the Department of Jobs and Family Services okay. and following up and trying to make sure that individuals got the money that was owed to them. So in a typical time, it's definitely more legislative just because people, you don't have that many people that are in need and it's, and they know to call your state rep. Um, but it was pretty overwhelming and, you know, people, most people don't know, I represent 120,000 people, I get one staffer and oh they, I mean, they do everything, right? It's from legislative, um, work, committee work, answering the constituent calls, my schedule, I mean, everything. So mm -hmm. it's one individual and, you know, to the point where me, it was me and my aide um, picking up the phone. I mean, we just couldn't do it alone. And, you know, I tip, I do constituent calls too, but it just was like 40 hours a week um, during the height of the pandemic. So Wow. Yeah. Working from home or working in Columbus? Working from home. Okay. Yeah. Now, when did you guys go back to Columbus for sessions? So I want to say we were only kind of off um, for about a month. Um, we, I mean, because there was, you know, needs. I mean, we needed to pass, um, you know, emergency legislation to sure. address, you know, the needs of, um, you know, waiving certain requirements of renewals, like BMV licensors, um, allowing um, local governments to meet virtually because that wasn't allowed prior to. Um, and so we had a lot of work um that we did to get accomplished in that time. And so we kind of went back pretty, pretty early and it was a pretty um, jarring experience um, with my current colleagues, um, which a lot of people don't know that, you know, the governor can't tell the legislature in our workplace what to do. So it was the only place in the state that did not have a mask mandate um, or any of those stipulations. Um, so you, if you, if, you know, individuals went outside to a restaurant, to the a governor's building, they had to have a mask, but as soon as they came into the legislature, they would take it off. There was no social distancing. And so it was a very uh, jarring place in the height of the pandemic, uh, to work at. Um, yeah. but you know, it's the people's work. So you, you had to be there, but it was uncomfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. All these, all these things that had to get done. And, um, yeah. Enough said about that. <laughs> yeah, we make uh, national news quite frequently recently. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, not typically for good things, but <laughs> how many? Uh, what is the ratio of Republican to Democrat in the House? So we have um, so Democrats are in a super minority, meaning that they control um, the governorship, all the statewide's, and both chambers. So we're at thirty-five Democrats out of ninety-nine. Everyone benefits when I think we have a more balanced um, state legislature. That actually reflects what Ohio really looks like. And what do you mean by that? So we're actually going through the process of redistricting right now, and that's the big fight in the Supreme Court. Um, so if you took away all of the lines, um, Democrats are, on average, getting about 46% of the vote. However, we only have 35 seats. So, you know, for that, you know, representational Which is fairness, roughly a third, right? It's roughly a third of the seats, mm -hmm. a little over. So if you know, you look at that, what if 10 years ago when these lines were drawn, there was no real guardrails, you know, whoever was in charge and Democrats do it too. Mm -hmm. um, it's self-interest, right? So if you have the pen and you have the power, more than likely you're going to draw lines that benefit you and your party. And that's what happened. So we have these lines that don't actually reflect the will of, what Ohioans actually are voting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we get um, 
an outsourced, you know, party that has more control than they should and is more extreme than Ohio actually is. And so we're actually going through that fight right now and saying, you know, we should have Democrats should have their fair share of um, seats. And, you know, if we had 46 seats, you know, we're still not in the majority, but then you start legislating from the middle and you have to work in a bipartisan way because you're going to have your fringe people on the left and the right, but the majority would be in the middle. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've gotten away from. And that's when more natural incentives to collaborate. Absolutely. Right now, um, what happens is they packed all the Democrats into a, a seat. So you have in some cases, a 90% Democratic index. And same thing with the Republicans. So, you know, they're not competitive, but your biggest competition is your primary. Right. So there's not a real incentive. Um, if my biggest competition is a Democrat to work with Republicans, because right. I'm always going to get knocked for not being you know, progressive or liberal enough. And so that happens on both sides. So you get nobody working from the middle and mm-hmm. people just being pushed further and further to the extreme and it's Ohioans that suffer because it's their the majority of Ohioans viewpoints are not being addressed. I see. So the recent headlines regarding redistricting have concerned the federal districts, right? Not, not the house of not, not the state house districts. Yeah. So we, they passed um, state legislative districts um, a couple weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago. Um, we are actually set to vote on the congressional maps. Um, I believe either tomorrow or I think Wednesday in the Senate and Thursday in the house, um, they will be, um, voting those out. And so simple majority. So it's complicated. So in order to get um, a 10 year map, which typically, cause that's when the census seems every 10 years, you see where the new populations are at. So that's why we redraw. Right. Um, because of um, two different um, ballot initiatives that passed in 2015-2018 by nonpartisan groups uh, to actually make this process more fair and to put up those guardrails that didn't exist prior. Um, If you, it says in order to get that 10-year map, you need to have at least a third of Democrats supporting you. And if you don't get a third of Democrats supporting you, it goes to a four-year map. And then in four years you have to redraw them again. And the incentive there is, you know, if um, at that time a Democrat could take over the governorship and then you have Democrats in power. Um, Mm -hmm. But unfortunately um, Republicans are, I think, are, you know, taking the, we'll just risk it and hope we keep, you know, the statewide office holders. And um, they are, have not produced a map that is anywhere close to fair. um, That would actually be acceptable for us to approve. So the most likely outcome from this week's vote is a four-year plan. Correct. And I would imagine uh, that there will be multiple lawsuits. And so the state legislative seats are in the Supreme Court. Um, They're going to start hearing oral arguments in early December. And so I think that will be a good indicator if those maps get thrown out. And that means they have to redraw them. That that could also happen with the congressional maps, which is pretty crazy because, you know, Election Day doesn't change. And that's getting pretty close if you keep going back and forth and redrawing the maps, which is not easy to do. Right. Um, so it's all fun with the state house. So the state house seats were drawn and are already in court. Correct. All right. Got it. And, and the much- congressionals this week, and I'm sure if it's a four-year map, those will soon be in the Ohio Supreme Court. The primaries for the next house election is when? Next next May or March? When is it? It is 
May, um, mm-hmm. and the filing deadline is February. So that's so the Supreme Court could move the primary, but election day is always you know Tuesday first Tuesday of November. So mm-hmm. it really, especially if you're running for Congress, um, that's not a lot of time uh, to um, figure that out. And you know some individuals, um, mostly Democrats, got drawn out of their districts, so they either have to move or not run or run in a improbable. Mm-hmm. win for them. And so there are individuals who are, you know, would, would move, but do you move and then it gets thrown out, then you have to move back and it's just, um, absolute craziness and you have to get petitions. So you have to get, you know, a certain amount of people in your community who is of the same party of yours, which it's more difficult than you would think. And that takes time. So you have to, you know, you could have less than a month to, you know, figure out where your district is, get your petitions certified and then start running. Okay. Tight timeline. Yeah, that doesn't leave much room for delay. No, and some could um, conjecture that that might be part of the strategy. Um. I see. Obviously, we're a construction association. Um, I think, um, I know I've spoken to your father about our issues. Um, 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 Marty Sweeney, now county councilman. Yes, he is. Mm -hmm. Um, How much do you know our industry? Um, I'm no expert, but I think with everything, you know, with being a state lawmaker, you have to know a little bit about everything and then um, um, rely on and work with the experts to actually, you know, th- those in the industry to tell you how it actually, you know, works. And so that's how I approach most individual things. I didn't know much about education policy, but actually taking the time to listen to teachers, principals, parents. Um, I think that makes a, a good lawmaker, but yeah. I do have a, um, some, my prompt pay bill, house bill 68, which I'm sure you're going to bring up. So I've gotten through, um, working with, um, those individuals, um, on that bill has really, um, gave me, you know, a deeper, um, perspective on the industry. So that passed out of the house. Thank you for sponsoring that. Of course. That's important for small businesses of all types. Um, it's in the Senate. Do you have any uh, current gauge on where that's at or how long it will take in the Senate? Yeah. Um, so it did pass um, the house. Um, I think it was 86 to 11, which is. That's great. Yeah. Things are very rarely um, that high, which is exciting when, you know, of course I, um, I did, you know, I'm working with a Republican representative, John Cross, um, which m- many things we do not agree on, but the fact that we could work together and, you know, bring our individual caucuses or parties together to actually get it to a floor vote was very exciting. Um, it's been, it's in a Senate committee currently, and I, we just talked to the chairman's office and we should be having a first hearing on that bill within the next week or so. So, you know, I'm hoping that we can get this moving, you know, hopefully by, you know, a few hearings on it by the end of the year and pass this early on, because anything that doesn't get passed within the biennium dies and you have to start over again. So Representative right. John Cross and I had this bill last year and, you know, a lot of things got put on hold with the pandemic. And obviously there were, you know, this is an important piece of legislation, but, you know, we were working on other things and it ended up dying. So we had to restart that process all over again. So the fact that we've already had it go through the house committee process, the floor vote, and now it's just in the Senate, we did get a confirmation. We should be have a, having a first hearing, um, within the next few weeks. So it's very exciting. Yeah. Good. So what are you working on right now? 
Um, so, I mean, I recently just got this finance role and, um, it's very exciting because we're going into the state capital budget, which actually has, you know, a connection to a lot of, um, local governments, municipalities or nonprofits who can get dollars to actually, you know, not for operations, but, you know, capital, you know, buildings, infrastructure, which helps, you know, the construction industry and jobs. And so, um, we should be starting that process soon, um, going through there, um, and divvying out, um, different projects for, you know, state higher education and there's the different funds, but the exciting part is the community projects where each lawmaker actually gets to, um, you can submit to your state representative and you work with them. Um, and then they will make their recommendations and what they believe is the most impactful for their local districts. And then the County typically, um, like our Cuyahoga County delegation will meet and figure out what the regional interests are to do that. So, you know, you have everything from renovations of the Rock Hall to Providence House, um, you know, doing a new building um, on the east side to um, new trails to, you know, we got money for Brook Park for a pavilion. Um, so small things and very, very large things, but they have a real, it's one of the few things that actually, you know, constituents or citizens can look and actually see taxpayer money being you know, used to help promote a certain cause or a certain entity. And it has to be connected to the government and some kind of government state agency. So it's not just, you know, giveaway, but it's for the public good and there's strict, um, you know, guardrails on those monies, but it's actually very exciting and it's rarely controversial. We had a little fight last time because they said we shouldn't be spending money in a pandemic, but I go, you know, educating a lot of people that's not general revenue funds, it's bonded out and, you know, we can't afford it. And, you know, especially in a time of um, uncertainty, actually giving some money to make sure people can have jobs uh, in that time. And I'm glad that we got through that and did do a capital budget. So that's coming up. And I'm just really excited to be on the finance committee. So um, any in the house, any bill that spends any money has to, so we can go through a different committee, but if there's any appropriation, it has to then get re- referred to finance. So we kind of are the overseer of all the taxpayer money being spent. And it's a very um, important role. And so just doing the due diligence um, is kind of my focus at the moment. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of our members are going to be keeping an eye on the capital budget. We always are. Um, I want to ask you about the difference between the, there is an education committee, right? Are you on that or are you on the, is, is the finance subcommittee for education different than the education committee? It is. That's a great question. So, um, the, when a new biennium starts, um, we have a I think $7 billion transportation budget we pass out in the first three months. And then the $70 billion, um, budget we have to pass by the constitution in six months. And so those subcommittees, because it's, you know, $70 billion. Um, they um, have the full finance committee, which it's the largest committee. So it has probably 30 plus members on it. And then there's subcommittees of there. So all of the subcommittees deals with the state budget. So that's the primary secondary education committee was the committee that um, was going to do the policy and figure out how much, you know, we were going to spend on that health and human services, Medicaid, you know, there was that a different subcommittee mm-hmm. and then all the outside of budget time. Cause that's only the first six months out of the two years we're in session. 
you have the education that does deals more with policy um, okay. and kind of curriculum and um, things surrounding that and not dealing with money. But there is money spent sometimes, you know, because things come up outside of the budget mm-hmm. um, that, you know, if there's an appropriation attached to it, it will go back to that finance during regular time. As I've noticed, there's often a lot of policy built into the budget. It's almost all policy driven, the budget. And there's a lot of language that goes into the budget as well. Is that the case with education? Uh, so th- that's uh, definitely fair. It should technically be just about funding, but um, the reason why you see a lot of policy in there is because it is one of very few things that absolutely have to be passed. And we have to have a balanced budget in the state. And you know, if we don't pass a state budget um, and get it signed by the governor by July 1st of that first year of the biennium, we... Um, defund government. So that's because it's that tool. Um, you will often see a lot of, um, it becomes, you know, a big Christmas tree bill that, you know, I always say, if you want something passed, always try to do it in the budget. Um, they try to keep some policy in there, but policy is always kind of, um, put in there for that reason, um, for that purpose. All right. Well, I don't know if you know where I'm heading with this, but there's a lot of, uh, school board discussions going on in the news right now. Do you anticipate having to address any of that in your subcommittee for the um, education financing? So no, um, that, um, so we have not met since the budget, um, but the um, debate over um, who should be setting curriculum and what's being taught in schools, specifically critical race theory um, is actually, um, I actually believe it's in state and local government. So that's the fun thing is Hmm. you would think it would be in the education standing committee. Um, but they can put, um, bills wherever they want. And sometimes it's very strategic depending on which people are on there and who is interested in that topic or who, if they can, you know, because the committee is the first step. So you have to get something passed out of committee. And sometimes it doesn't happen often. There could be a bill in the committee, but the majority doesn't have enough members of their own. So they put it to a different committee that they know will put it out. And so it's a lot of thought goes into why, certain bills go different places. So I, see. Um, I don't sit on that committee either. So okay. It's very controversial. So. Yeah. Well, maybe good for you. <laughs> I'll take it. I've ha- um, had my hand in play of controversial fights, so I'm happy to let other people kind of take that up sure. for the moment. Sure. Uh, so who are your closest colleagues down in Columbus? Um, that's a good question. Uh, so, you know, I, I think obviously just a lot of the individuals in Cuyahoga County, um, you know, I get along with you know, all of them and, you know, you tend to work with your delegation and we try to, um, you know, leverage that support. And actually we have, have especially non-controversial things when it's definitely a urban county versus rural county, um, working with the Republicans in Cuyahoga County has been crucial to actually you know, that fight, cause it is, um, definitely leans more rural, um, in the majority and having those individuals, um, has been very helpful. Um, and you know, I've made it a, a point to really try to get to know my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. Um, not just in committees, but actually on a personal level. Um, I'm not gonna lie. It's very toxic. Um, lots of emotions, a lot of craziness. I don't know what any other workplace that could be that crazy, but is it toxic off the record too, or just on the record? It, it's sometimes off the record too. Um, but I, I think part of it comes back to, you know, 
not getting to know each other on that personal level. Sure. And it's very hard to, um, or it's harder to be mean to somebody or just to dismiss them, not take them seriously. Um, when, um, you get to know somebody's, you know, wife or husband or kids and get to know, you know, maybe why they have a viewpoint. And right. so I've actually been very successful in, um, making a lot of, um, you know, Republican, you know, friends. And that's why, you know, I've actually been fortunate enough, um, in a super minority to pass six bills out already. And, um, all of them besides one had a Republican on them. I mean, I live in reality and I understand, you know, I'm not going to be passing my, you know, particular democratic agendas sure. as I would, but you right. have to work with them. And, um, it, it takes time to also for them to trust me in that, you know, working, they don't have an incentive to work with Democrats. They can do whatever they want without me. And so I, I, I um, equate that to taking the time to actually get to know my colleagues on the other side of the aisle and that they can get to know me and my motivation, you know, oftentimes we have the same motivation, just different ways of getting there. Mm -hmm. And if you can get each other to understand that there's more in common than you would think. Absolutely. Yeah. Getting somebody, getting to know somebody personally does make it a lot harder to just dismiss them or categorize them as totally other, other than what you, you value. Absolutely. And it's helpful for me too. I mean, on some, you know, there's some policies I'm just, why in the world would you be against this or for this? And actually sitting down and, you know, in a non, you know, doing something, you know, going to lunch, coffee, maybe a drink and really just understanding and not in that combative, you know, environment and off the TV cameras. And, you know, I've, you know, gotten to actually understand and appreciate, okay, it, you know, there's way more to this than I, I ever thought. And so it's helped me also understand um, and be more accepting of the other side as well. So. Got it. Um, when you are in session, do you just stay at a hotel? Do you have a place down there? How do you make it work just in your personal time management? Yeah. So we, um, I've been, um, between hotels and motels because our, our reimbursement is 60 bucks. And so that doesn't get you too far and it can't get expensive. Yeah. Uh, so there's actually a place called the German village Inn, and it's, it's a lovely establishment, but it's a motel. Um, definitely a little lower end. And it's funny though, because a lot of, um, Democrats and Republicans stay there. And uh -huh. so, you know, you know, some people in leadership, some people who are six years old and then, you know, me staying in this, um, you know, motel, um, it's just, I think people have this idea of, you know, this glamorous life right. of a, you know, state representatives. Um, and it's, it's you just imagine what you can get for $60 a night. Right. That's <laughs> But it's a lovely place, and I'm fortunate that they charge us $60 a night because it definitely, I think they charge us 47 So it's the only thing you can get for under $60. Wow. Uh, sometimes I do treat myself and you know, stay somewhere a little nicer. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it is. Um, and we do get a reimbursement for mileage, but it is hard being um, away from the district, um, especially with my new assignments. Um, I have to be there on Mondays, which I didn't have to be there before. And so... Um, it's always good to, you know, we do get breaks so you can be in the district. You know, I still have that, you know, it's kind of the two hats, the lawmaker in Columbus, but also the person in the community who, you know, it seems silly, but it's a really important role to acknowledge and recognize people who've done good work, who've retired, you know, our police officers, our firemen, give them proclamations, ribbon cuttings. I mean, it's definitely not the highest portion of the job, but recognizing and meeting with people in person 
you know, most people cannot go to Columbus to meet with me, right. you know, and they shouldn't have to. So um, being in the community is very important to me and being seen. So it's a hard balance because um, the more, um, I guess, higher roles you get um, in Columbus keeps you there more. Um, and so it's always a tough balance. Sure. Imagine. So how many days are you usually in Columbus? So um, I will be there two days this week, um, but it can be um, recently it's been Mondays through Thursdays. Yeah. So it, and during budget time, it sometimes is five days a week. Sure. Um, and I'm sure being the head of the Democrats in finance going through the budget, um, I will be there all the time, but it's only for that six months. I mean, it is, I mean, when we're working in the budget, it's, you know, from like 8 a.m. 8 to like 11 p.m. Well, you know, we pass out the budget typically at like one, two, three in the morning. So it's um, definitely a lot of late nights, but it's good to have that deadline because it actually makes us do it and not be uh, dragging our feet. Sure. It's a good thing that you are in your 20s still because you have a leg up on of those long days. I am so impressed by some of, um, you know, the average age of my coworkers as um, quite older than me. And I'm always shocked that they are up there right with me. Um, and you know, a lot of them been doing it for a long time. So, uh, no, you know, I can't complain, sure. but they, <laughs> yeah, totally joking. I know, Choked. I know everybody works super hard down there, but, um, can't, can't hurt to be 29. Right. <laughs> hey, it has its plus and minuses. So I'll take that. <laughs> right. Um, is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with? I mean, I just really appreciate talking with um, you and um, everyone listening. And, um, you know, I don't know everything. And if there's ever an issue um, that I could be helpful with or, you know, want to express to me, regardless if I represent you, um, I always offer that because it makes me a better lawmaker. Uh, this is my full-time job and I treat it as that. Um, so I just, anyone, I go, it's very easy to find me. My name's Bride Sweeney. There's not many of them. So if you Google me, it's me. And uh, I answer most of my own emails and Facebook and social media. So I just, anything I can do for anyone, I'd be happy to help. Great. Well, thanks again for being on and I uh, wish you well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. To find more information about the discussion in this or prior episodes, be sure to check the episode notes section in your podcast app. Get notified and automatically download the latest episode by subscribing to the Construction Employers podcast in the iTunes Store or in Google Play. This podcast is brought to you by the Construction Employers Association. Find us on the web at www.ceacisp.org.